Welcome to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 28th episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. The image of Eden is everywhere in the Western world, half submerged in the consciousness even of people who believe neither in God nor in any particular beginning of time. Most cultures regard certain stories with more reverence than others, Northrop Fry writes, either because they're thought of as historically true or because they've come to bear a heavier weight of conceptual meaning. The story of Adam and Eve has thus a canonical position for poets in our tradition, whether they believe in its historicity or not. Moreover, Eden was indispensable from another point of view. It introduced into the Bible, for the first time, the human dimensions of time, of birth and dying, of destructive human choices from which there was no turning back. The rest of the Bible's thrust into the future always pointed to an apocalyptic recovery of the lost delights of Eden, the restoration of grace and reunion with God through the Messiah, who would come as a second Adam to cleanse the sins of the first. Paul implied that Jesus Christ both resembled and was different from the first Adam. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And while Christ did not yearn for a godlike stature, the cross on which he died was frequently likened to the sacred tree of Genesis. My purpose is not so much to explore the theological ramifications of the Garden of Eden as to assemble a concrete idea of earthly paradise from the few references to be found here and there in the Bible. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden In the east, the Bible tells us, and there he put the man he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food, the tree also of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
so begins the biblical account of Eden, a delight, a garden of God, the earthly paradise, the primordial place where eternal life and wisdom could be conferred on man. A river flowed out of Eden, dividing into four rivers, the Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. Here, Adam lived at first. He was meant to till and keep the garden and was warned by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the beasts of the field and birds of the air were brought to him that he might name them and have dominion over them. Eve was formed as a fit helper out of one of Adam's ribs during a deep sleep. The serpent urged Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, saying, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. After yielding to this temptation, Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and, feeling shame and guilt, they hide from his sight. But God, in anger, expels Adam and Eve from Eden because of their wickedness, saying to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. After which God sends Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, setting up the cherubim with a flaming sword, which turns every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Eden is hardly described in Genesis at all. We're presented in a few lines with the image of a charmed, well-watered garden, of a lush pastoral haven in the burning Mesopotamian wilderness where death, evil, sin, toil, and suffering do not yet exist because here God and men live in harmony. Like a perfect dream, few words are needed. Earthly paradise is conveyed by means of contrasted images, insofar as it can be considered a place in the world rather than a mystical vision. We should not set Eden in the context of verdant countries with temperate climates. A garden in Italy or in France would have nowhere near the same evocative power, since it would seem like any other normal garden. Eden should be placed back in the scorched setting of the desert. I'm reminded, for example, of the dusty palms of the oasis town of Al-Azraq, shimmering in the Syrian desert of eastern Jordan, close to Iraq. T.E. Lawrence, that is, Lawrence of Arabia, describes it in the Seven Pillars of Wisdom in these words. Azraq's unfathomable silence was steeped 
in knowledge of wandering poets, champions, lost kingdoms, all the crime and chivalry and dead magnificence of Hira and Ghassan. Each stone or blade of it was radiant with half-memory of the luminous silky Eden which had passed so long ago. For desert peoples, the oasis is a life-sustaining miracle of geography, where once-a-year floods can be contained and measured out rather than wasted, and mysterious cool aquifers can be tapped, and camels can fatten up and provide milk, and there's shelter from the searing, swelling dunes of sand blown about by the wind. Forced departure from the oasis can very well mean sudden death. In the Pentateuch, the myth of Eden is all the more powerful in that it lies in the vertical either-or world of the desert. It's implicitly contrasted with mortal man's relentless struggle to survive the arbitrary hammer blows of nature's plagues, famine and flooding, the arbitrary rule of bondage, imprisonment, slavery and murder, and the no less arbitrary tug and pull of man's own uncertainty, self-doubt and fears. The earth was conceived by the ancient Hebrews as a vast, flat surface lying between a huge pit below, a place of unquenchable fire, smoke, and torments inhabited by shades of the dead, and God's heavens above, which stretched to the horizon and were supported by foundations which trembled and quaked when God was angry. There were seven heavens, of which the third, we're told, was paradise. This is true for the early Christians as well. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, I know a man in Christ, probably Paul himself, I suppose, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which no man may utter. There's no explicit parallel in the Bible between this third heaven and the primordial garden, although Eden evidently served as a conceptual foundation for paradise. In apocalyptic books of the Bible, paradise looms large. It is thus the ultimate focal point of eschatological expectations. Eden provides a tangible symbolic vehicle for paradise. For example, God says to Ezekiel, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelian, topaz and jasper, chrysolite, beryl and onyx, sapphire, carbuncle and emerald, and wrought in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. With an anointed guardian cherub I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. And God said to Esdras, Because it is for you that paradise is opened, the tree of life is planted, the age to come is prepared, plenty is provided, a city is built, rest is appointed, goodness is established, and wisdom perfected beforehand.
I would like at this point to mention several alternate views of Eden, which the Church ultimately rejected as uncanonical. Eden as a symbol of fertility and spiritual power, Eden as an ethereal place in whose streams flowed milk and honey, and Eden as a place of despair and self-destruction. First, according to the Gnostic book Baruch by Justin, Eden is an esoteric symbol of female fertility corresponding to the spiritual side of humanity rather than a distinct place. Gnosticism is prominent in the Greco-Roman world in the second century AD and posits that the elect will be redeemed by means of esoteric knowledge which will be revealed to them. In Baruch, Justin writes that paradise is the fruit of the mutual satisfaction of Elohim and Eden, after which the angels of Elohim take some of the most excellent earth of Eden to make man. From the bestial parts come wild beasts and the other animals. Elohim and Eden fashion man as a symbol of their unity and love. They each give him a share of their powers. Eden provided the soul and Elohim the spirit, says Baruch. And man, the Adam, became a seal and memorial of their love and an eternal symbol of the marriage of Eden and Elohim. A second example is the apocryphal Secrets of Enoch. We read that Enoch was taken up into the first and second heavens before being assumed into the third, where the root of the tree of knowledge is in the garden at the earth's end. Yet there's something distinctly intangible and otherworldly about this paradise. Two springs come out which send forth honey and milk, says Enoch, and their springs send forth oil and wine, and they go separate into four parts and go round the quiet course and go down into the paradise of Eden between corruptibility and incorruptibility. I'll give you a third example, the apocryphal first book of Adam and Eve, which states that the two inhabitants of Eden are so desolated by their own wickedness that they try to drown themselves in the waters flowing from the garden past the tree of knowledge. None of these three books ever finds a place in the biblical canon. Okay, so I've reviewed several biblical and esoteric references to paradise and the Garden of Eden. These references are taken from the creative phase of the Judeo-Christian tradition when myth surges forth in a spontaneous fashion. There comes afterwards a more analytical phase during which theologians break Eden down systematically into various components or essential features in order to answer objections, chase away their own lingering doubts, and, when necessary, merge the myth of Eden with other cherished beliefs. In the early 5th century AD, Augustine brings about a fusion of the New Testament with Platonism. He seeks to defend the literal meaning of the Bible from its most determined heretic and pagan adversaries. He notes that there are three possible theories of paradise. There is, first, the opinion of those who interpret the word paradise in an exclusively corporeal sense, he writes. Then there are those who prefer to give an exclusively spiritual meaning to the word. Finally, there are those who accept the word paradise in both senses, sometimes corporeally and at other times spiritually. Augustine favors the latter theory, 
No better demonstration can be found of the cultivated ambiguity of the Church, always shifting between various interpretations of Scripture until it finds the most convenient one. I'm interested most of all here in the literal interpretation of Genesis, since it provides clues about the religious search for earthly paradise, which as we shall see was eventually superseded by speculative and scientific searches for a perfect world. It was important for Jews and Christians alike to determine the exact location of Eden since this knowledge would give legitimacy to a myth which was quite hard to take literally. Augustine accepts accounts of paradise as fact. No good reason, he writes, prohibits us from understanding things first in the literal sense. We can therefore follow with simplicity the authority of scripture in the narration of these historical realities, taking them first as true historical realities and then searching for any further meaning they may have. The systematic search for earthly paradise mobilized legions of theologians, poets, geographers, explorers from the Maccabean revolt of the first century up to the Renaissance, some concentrating on the four rivers flowing out of paradise, others on the holy mountain of God, still others on the third heaven of Paul. In the first century AD, Flavius Josephus identifies the four rivers. The Gihon is the Nile of Egypt. The Fison is the Ganges of India and the Tigris and Euphrates are the contemporary rivers of the same name. In the 4th century, Ephraim the Syriac concludes that the Fison is actually the Danube. In the early 5th century, the Cappadocian Philostrogios places Eden at the equator. Around the same time, it should be noted, Augustine agrees with Flavius Josephus on the identification of the four rivers flowing out of paradise. A very novel idea is developed in the 6th century by Cosmos Indicoplustes. As the French historian Jean de Lumont puts it, according to Cosmos, the habitable earth is surrounded on all sides by an ocean, and beyond this ocean is an external world which contains a paradise where God has put Adam. After the original sin, Adam and his first descendants went to live in the same part of the world, but it was hard to till and infested with beasts. They lived there until the flood, the time when God saved Noah thanks to the ark which took 150 days to cross the ocean and reach our world. In Delumont's view, the long and short of these various speculations about Eden is that paradise now lies beyond the reach of humanity whether because of the gulf of original sin or because an immense uncrossable ocean separates Eden from humanity.
Well, we can appreciate how the discovery of the New World in the 15th century fits snugly into the interpretation of Cosmos, the Atlantic being considered now the uncrossable ocean. Starting in the 11th century, the focus of speculation shifts. Rather than try to determine the location of Eden, authors now write imaginary accounts of journeys there. The most famous of these journeys is Dante's Divine Comedy. By the time of the voyages of discovery of Christopher Columbus in the late 15th century and early 16th century, the biblical myth of earthly paradise has greatly changed shape. Such writers as Dante have imperceptibly merged it with other classical myths, such as the Golden Age. The apocalyptic dimensions of Eden, always latent, have risen once more to the surface and at a time of expanding knowledge and greater confidence about navigation, an idealized Eden across the seas finally seems within the reach of humanity. Columbus himself is no stranger to the Jewish and Catholic millenarianism of the Iberian subcontinent. He sets off on his first voyage in the same year as the Muslims are expelled from Spain. In the narrative made by Columbus of his third voyage, he discusses learned theories about the location of paradise, whether in the east, Ethiopia, or in the Canaries, describing to his sovereigns the Golfo de las Perlas at the mouth of the Orinoco River in current day Venezuela. This first important European discoverer of the Americas writes bluntly, For I believe that the earthly paradise lies here, which no one can enter except by God's leave. I believe that this land, which your highnesses have commanded me to discover, is very great, and that there are many other lands in the south of which there have never been reports. I do not hold that the earthly paradise has the form of a rugged mountain, as is shown in pictures, but that it lies at the summit of what I have described as a stalk of a pear, and that by gradually approaching it, one begins, while still at a great distance, to climb towards it. It's understandable that Columbus should take America for earthly paradise, since its lush vegetation, abundant water, and boundless mineral resources seem without precedent. 
its native peoples, in their naked innocence, in their placid, unsophisticated harmony with the Creator, seem to hearken back to the very beginnings of time. This huge discovery rolls over Europe like a tidal wave. The sciences of navigation and geography are now directly involved in the quest of earthly paradise. The discovery excites the imagination of many creative people who begin to develop idealized Edens of the imagination existing outside of time. Except that the newly discovered earthly paradise of America is not for long an object of veneration. It is quickly conquered, enslaved, humiliated, depopulated, pillaged, despoiled, and exploited. The bold assertion made by Columbus is believed by some. Sir Walter Raleigh, for example, the English navigator and author, leads an expedition up the Orinoco in 1595 on the assumption that the fabled El Dorado lies in Guyana, in the interior of South America. El Dorado is a tantalizing, shimmering mirage of bountiful wealth, lying at the juncture of the Golden Age, the biblical myth of paradise, and the alchemical dream of the philosopher's stone. It is nonetheless clearly a mirage, as can be attested by anyone, like me, who's actually been to Guyana. But the view of Columbus is also contested on many sides. Some attack his lack of learning. Certainly his financial motives can be questioned. Doesn't this belated discovery of paradise assure the discoverer of gold for future voyages? If so, this all may have been an early modern example of the scam. Columbus takes an apocalyptic end-of-the-world tone in the narration of his fourth voyage when he brooks the subject of future funding. The claims of Columbus are taken seriously, however. Why else would Jacques Cartier bitterly dismiss the barren coast of South Labrador as the land which God gave to Cain? Raleigh devotes many pages in the history of the world to the precise location of Eden. There's something extraordinarily touching in the circumstances of this work, which Raleigh pens in the tower while awaiting his execution. Raleigh holds that the flood has not utterly defaced the marks of paradise, nor caused hills on the earth, he denies that paradise is the whole earth, as if the ocean were the fountain of the four rivers. He attacks the view that paradise is as high as the moon, or higher than the middle region of the air. He settles ultimately on Babylonia and Mesopotamia as the most likely location. Out of Eden, he writes, 
came a river, or rivers, to water the garden, both which rivers, that is, the Tigris and Euphrates, come out of Armenia, and both of them traverse Mesopotamia, regions first of all known by the name of Eden, for their beauty and fertility. And it is very probable that Eden contained also some part of Armenia, and the excellent fertility thereof in diverse places is not unworthy of the name of Eden. It's soon obvious that Columbus has not found paradise, but that only serves to stimulate the creative imagination of Europe. The search for earthly paradise might be all but over, but wouldn't it be intriguing if paradise had existed somewhere on earth after all? Why not satisfy humanity's age-old longing for peace and fulfillment by imagining the perfect society? Such light-hearted imagining could even inspire some positive changes in society. In the 18th century, Sir Isaac Newton writes extensively about the language of prophecy as well as about the apocalypse itself. Like many of his contemporaries, he seeks to determine the place of his age in the course of events preordained by God, and thus to evaluate when the last things will come upon the world. Newton is living at a time of intense eschatological anxiety and expectation, when prophecies are rife and the apocalyptic calculations made by mathematicians and astronomers lays the groundwork for the emergence of experimental science. As the historian Charles Webster has pointed out, there's something unnerving about the new discoveries. Knowledge enhanced the sense of trial and impermanence, Webster writes. God's retribution seemed more imminent to the contemporaries of Paracelsus and Newton than the possibility of nuclear holocaust seems to us. Accordingly, questions relating to the more permanent features of world systems or planetary mechanisms arguably took second place among the educated public to cosmological considerations bearing on the immediate future of Europe. Experts were accordingly faced with the delicate problem of bringing their cosmology in line with eschatology. The knowledge-based model of the secular apocalypse would not have been possible without the secularization of knowledge. This transition is made largely in the 18th and 19th centuries when science holds out the promise of serving as the basis for the rational reorganization of every aspect of human existence. Nature, reason, the imagination, feeling, human relations, economic relations, morality, God. Millenarians and positivists alike redirect the mindset and the tremendous emotional force of religion to secular undertakings, such as the pursuit of scientific knowledge.
Secular knowledge seems to guarantee that humanity will be swept along the thrilling course of progress towards a radiant future when everything will be possible, everything within reach. Given the transcendent character of this future, ways have to be found to express such an extraordinary change in human destinies. Spontaneously, the various founding myths of the Western world surge forth. The Golden Age, Biblical Time, Earthly Paradise, and, indeed, the Apocalypse. These founding myths are merged into new coherent wholes, which form the foundation of the optimistic ideology of material progress. Secular knowledge provides a convenient focus since the emancipation of knowledge from the constraints of religious orthodoxy has opened up so many possibilities. Knowledge has a personal dimension since it's acquired by means of education. It also has an industrial dimension since it's the key to material progress. Well, an indication that secularization does not proceed in a linear fashion, nor even in any single direction, is offered by the irrepressible romantic of the 18th century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It's important to consider him in our examination of the secular search for earthly paradise, since, unlike utopian authors Sir Thomas More and Sir Francis Bacon, Rousseau hates the sciences, and particularly the idea of progress, while he praises a secularized Eden of his imagination, an idealized pre-agricultural society at once vigorous, unselfconscious, and virtuous. So in two works, Discours sur les sciences et les arts and Discours sur l'origine et les fondements de l'inégalité parmi les hommes, Rousseau combines in a fresh whole a number of age-old ideas about good, evil, and the pursuit of knowledge. I find in Rousseau shades of Genesis, of Ovid, of Paul warning the Colossians about vain philosophy, of Thomas More. He defies the Christian doctrine that man is inherently flawed. He likewise rises against the Enlightenment idea that increased knowledge will bring about greater happiness. 
he reworks several elements of Utopia and adds the enchanting liberty of the forest. In fact, Rousseau prefers the noble unawareness of the New World savage to the self-seeking pretensions of the Old World scholar. He imagines man in a utopian state of nature in the sacred groves at the beginning of time. It's hard not to see this imagining as a secular restatement of paradise before the fall when man was unstained. So Rousseau writes, the spectacle of nature becomes a matter of indifference to him by dint of becoming familiar to him. It's always the same order, always the same succession of changes. He doesn't have a mind for marveling at the greatest wonders, and we mustn't seek in him the philosophy that a man needs in order to know how to observe once what he's seen every day. His soul, agitated by nothing, is given over to the single feeling of his own present existence without any idea of the future, however near it may be, and his projects, as limited as his views, hardly extend to the end of the day. The direction of time is regressive, leading from nature to civilization, from purity to corruption, from better to worse. Natural man is born virtuous and loses his wild innocence the more he's exposed to arts and sciences. Most so-called learning of any sort is vain, error-ridden, dangerous, frivolous, a waste of time, and encourages the vices of luxury and idleness. True enough, says Rousseau, the sciences are the masterwork of human genius, Fine arts owe much to the spirit of imitation, and the mechanical arts have developed useful inventions which have greatly added to the charms and conveniences of life. Yet ultimately, the sciences are to be held in contempt, since they are largely useless, a drain on the state's resources, an exercise in futility, and in no way draw man closer to his creator. Finally, in civilized man's struggle with natural man, Technique will give an unfair advantage to civilized man, although natural man is naturally the more alert and resourceful of the two. The ambivalent romanticism of Rousseau has great resonance at a time when in Europe the city is encroaching on the country, and the Industrial Revolution is quickly increasing the potential of technology to change the environment and reorganize work. At the same time, pioneering authors are methodically investigating the exotic customs of New World natives. Rousseau's vision of a primordial state of nature draws attention away from the fact that he has no real understanding of the scientific enterprise, which he associates solely with the corruption and vice which have developed in society. He believes man would have been happier without any science at all, a belief which points directly back to the bitter consequences for Adam and Eve of tasting the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Secular apocalypses have some of the same features as religious apocalypses. Prophets announce and interpret revelations to the elect. In their prophecy, myth plays a preeminent role. Human acts will be judged at the end of the world, which may not be the end of existence per se, as much as the end of history or of human struggles. But there are crucial differences between religious and secular apocalypses. 
God has been replaced by some other transcendent value, whether the pursuit of revolutionary justice or scientific knowledge, the horizon remains largely in the future, but is here on earth rather than a cosmic out there. The content of human acts will be judged at the appropriate time, and the hidden meaning of history has been revealed to secular prophets. They generally have been determined social critics who authentically believe in their prophecy. The secular apocalypse of science hasn't quite died. Not yet. It has lived on in a new form, the technology-based model of the secular apocalypse. This is quite different from the knowledge-based one, since it consists in a series of worrisome observations, usually about some technology out of control. The observations are then pulled together in a plausible but unprovable theory, leading to a dramatic end-of-the-world scenario forcing humanity to choose between nothingness and survival. The impulse at the outset is a deep-seated anxiety about the continuity and survival of humanity in the face of unpredictable and total change. People hope in a future existence free from fear, death, and destruction, much like apocalypses from thousands of years ago. Our age is rife with such anxiety. So in this podcast, I'm speaking of the rift or conflict or competition between revealed religion and science. I'm not speaking of those people who believed in a philosophical God, from Plato to Aristotle, the Stoics, and Spinoza. Also, I'm speaking of science considered as a kind of secular religion. I'm not speaking of science as a vast, open self-correcting process of developing new knowledge. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. And Evidencia is spelled E-V-I-D-E-N, as in November, T-I-A, Evidencia. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Trekker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now, here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Trekker, accompanied by Pascal Demel on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs. All rights reserved. Mm -hmm.